Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and Mazel Tov. Good Shabbos. So hanging over my head in the sanctuary on the bima is one of the great symbols of Judaism and religion. Because of this symbol, it is forbidden for synagogues to have full three-dimensional images in them. And there's an additional tradition that even one-dimensional images are frowned upon. For that reason, the human images on the stained glass windows are imperfect. If you look carefully, you'll see that a hand that has only four fingers or a foot, only four toes. So the symbol of the Ten Commandments became one of the few symbols that were incorporated into synagogues. That said, I have to admit something. You know, each and every year we come to this morning's Torah portion, which happens to have the giving of the Ten Commandments in it. And I always think about that skit when Mel Brooks played Moses. There he is, ascending the mountain where God calls out to him, and God says, Moses, this is the Lord, thy God, commanding you to obey my law. Do you hear me? And Moses says, yes, I hear you, I hear you. A deaf man could hear you. Moses says, oh Lord, what would you have me do for you? And God tells him, I shall give you my laws and you will take them unto my people. So Mel Brooks' Moses comes out and stands on the mountaintop and says, oh, hear me. The Lord has given unto you these 15. And he drops one of the tablets. Oh, 10, 10 commandments for all to obey. But even in that scene, humor and silliness aside, we find something tragic about Moses. There he is all alone. This moment unquestionably the greatest of his life and there he is, without wife, without his sons, Gershom and Eliezer, terribly alone. The dimension deepens when we realize that we hear of his children only two times in the entire text of the Torah and that there would be no Moses dynasty and the one who will assume the leadership after him would not be his son but his student, Joshua. I think in a very small way we see this in the lives of the children of rabbis and ministers and my children are no different. I have a son doing a master's of philosophy in Israel which always leads to the inevitable question, what is he going to do with his life? It's not like there's some huge job market complaining about a, a shortage of philosophy majors. And he tells me, dad, don't worry, the rabbinate is my plan C. And so I ask him, what's your plan A or B? He says, I don't have one yet, but I do know I'll never be a rabbi. <laughs> so too with Moses. We have no idea what happens with the sons or grandchildren, but we do know that they never achieved anything near the greatness that their father did. You could say that Moses' shadow was so great that that surely scared his children away, and you wouldn't be wrong. I mean, we never hear of Einstein's, Gates's, Buffett's, or Beethoven's children after all, what burden could be greater than living in the mystique of your father? But in truth, I think there is one. You see, Jewish tradition believed there was another reason for the disappearance of Moses' sons, which becomes an indictment of Moses, the father. Which is to say that Moses, the father, failed. That there was something he did, or perhaps didn't do, that contributed to his children being what they were, and in many ways, what they ended up not being. And I'm saying all this because there's a warning in this for you and me, and not to fail our children like Moses failed his. You know, years ago there was an article in Psychology Today titled The Nation of Wimps that asked the kind of question that we all know, statistics aside, is anecdotally true. Why is it, it asks, 
that the rates of depression which used to be on the rise with people over 40 are now skyrocketing with children? And the answer, I suspect, is far from our great gaze. As a child, when I came home from the playground, I could bet I'd be yelled at for tearing the knees of my pants because I had jumped off a swing or slipped off a tree branch or fell off a slide onto the concrete. Today, we dispatch our children to all rubber cushioned surfaces where children safely bounce off the ground if they fall on it. Over a third of parents now send their children to school with antibacterial gels because they worry that the school bathrooms aren't clean enough. Today, a poor grade or a letter sent home doesn't end with the parent yelling at the child. We now get angry at the school. Time was the biggest emotional problems universities saw with students were relationship problems. Today, it's anxiety. Students arrive to the campuses so fragile, their lives having been so crafted and supported. In 2001, when then Treasury Secretary Lawrence Summers took over as president of Harvard, he discovered that 94% of all the students graduated with honors. And he asked himself, how is that possible? And that was because in order to appease families and make for happy students, Harvard lowered the bar to the point where nearly everyone graduates with an honor because lowered standards are better than hurt feelings, apparently. Have we finally arrived at that moment where academic and professional achievement is more important to us than character development? So looking at Moses, we can see how Jewish tradition tried to understand the disappearance of his sons and why we never hear from them again. Some commentators say it was because he was so involved with his public life that he never had time to study or be with them. Others say they weren't just leadership material, saying that greatness is made, but not given. But Adrian Zeidenberg, a professor at my alma mater of Bar Ilan, draws on the words of the medieval Spanish commentator Ibn Ezra. He says the reasons why Moses' son never achieved anything of note why those sons never became leaders wasn't because they weren't able or wanting, but when Moses went down to Egypt to free the Israelites from slavery, he left them behind in Midian. So our question for this morning is, what was Moses trying to do in leaving them behind, and why was that such a bad thing? What can Moses, our teacher, teach us now We'll now pause for some beautiful music and for some thoughtful prayer. And God willing, I'll share my answers with you in a little while. Please rise on page 368. Okay, so I began with the question. I'm going to answer it. Why did Moses leave those two sons behind in Midian? Our professor Zeidenberg from Bar Ilan tells us, that Moses knew that when he was called by God, that going back down to Egypt would be a dangerous mission, if not a lethal one, and he wanted to spare his children from that danger. Or maybe he just wanted to shield them from seeing the horror of slavery firsthand. But whatever was Moses' particular reason, we know that this overprotection may have made his children safe, but only at an enormous cost. They're safe in the wilderness of Midian, which is modern-day Jordan, his sons, Gershom and Eliezer, would not see the brutality of slavery, but they also would not live to see the miracles of the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, or be at Sinai for the giving of the Ten Commandments, that Moses, at his greatest moment, may have been alone, but they were absent, 
and that absence would leave an indelible mark on them for the remainder of their days. All Moses wanted is what most of us want. We want our children safe. But their story helps us realize that if you want to make a difference in this world, that you have to be prepared to suffer some pain, to face some measure of loss, to take the blows and failures that come with living in the world. Because the more you try to avoid suffering, the more you actually suffer. The mantra repeated by everyone from Oprah to Obama is that anything in your life is possible, that you can succeed in any dream, become anything you want. But is that really true? I mean, it gives them hope, but does it give them the tools to live real? So could it be, is it possible that the rampant anxiety and depression we see, if not created, is aided and fueled by our desire to shield those we love from making mistakes, to protect them from suffering loss, from realizing that not every dream comes true? Or let me say it this way. You want your children to, to, to succeed in the world, but are you prepared to let them fail? This question is deeply written into the story of Judaism that wants to teach you about because Buber and tales of the Hasidim write to the beginnings of the great Hasidic rabbi Aaron of Carlin. Carlin in his young days, we are told, loved fine clothes and beautiful things, so much so that he would never walk in the streets because the mud would splatter on his pants. Instead, he'd make the carriage he rode pull up to the curb as close as possible. But one day there he was leaning comfortably back in his carriage when he suddenly realized that this cannot be the way that it is done. So he demanded the horses be stopped and he stepped out onto the filthy road and he walked the rest of the way by foot getting completely soiled. And tradition has it, Buber notes, that this was the moment that was the beginning of his greatness. Which is to say that you can deny pain but you will also cheat glory. The writer Emerson would repeat the words of his beloved Aunt Mary every day Though I fail each and every day, to victory I march. And may it be true for each and every one of you. Shabbat Shalom.